Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Today we get to weave a new country into our timeline, Korea, with two groups we've already met, the Chinese and the Mongols. Korea seems to have had a very similar development to China. It was just able to isolate itself due to its geography. Its oldest known kingdom came to an end in 108 BCE, and its origins are shrouded in myth and legend. Nothing too exciting, we just don't have historical records, only stories. Stuff like a bear who turned into a woman and gave birth to an early Korean king, or the more realistic idea of Chinese refugees fleeing to Korea and founding kingdoms. Also, like China, Korea had periods of multiple kingdoms and periods of unification, and of course, we know today the Korean peninsula is divided into a north and a south. Our story today takes place in 1375 CE, during the early years of the Ming Dynasty in China. Korea is ruled by King Wu, a young boy who has just been placed on the throne by a faction who assassinated the previous king. And the movie doesn't actually mention that part, but it just gives the king's name and moves on. From the opening text, we learned that, quote, relations between Korea and the Ming rapidly deteriorated after the brutal murder of a Ming diplomatic envoy. Once the relations between the two countries finally improved, most of the diplomatic envoys were able to go home, but there were others who were unable to return. So this is where the movie starts off, with a Korean general and his entourage of diplomats being arrested by the Chinese. As they are then being escorted into exile, their caravan is attacked by a Mongol tribe who kills their Chinese captors and leaves the Koreans alive. They don't help them, they just say that they don't have any problem with the Koreans and let them live. But now they're stranded in the desert. I'm going to try to limit the use of proper nouns in this episode as the characters here are fictional, but the political dynamics at play and the setting are more accurate. I'll just call the general in charge of this band of Koreans, the general. At first, I figured he must be the warrior from the title of the film, but by the end, I realized it was another character who we'll get to in a bit. The chief diplomat in their group has died, and an old man says those duties now fall to him. And none of that really matters, though, as the general says they must begin the long march home to Korea, though they are currently in the desert in northern China. It doesn't say which, but China's best-known Gobi Desert seems like a good fit. And just to get oriented a bit with our geography here, using modern borders, so Mongolia sits on top of China to the north, basically in the center of it, though northeast China creeps up to the east of Mongolia, and the Korean peninsula hangs off to the south of this eastern bit of China, with the Yellow Sea to its west, and the Sea of Japan to its east, and then the East China Sea to the south of Korea. The southern ends of Korea and Japan are separated by about 100 miles of sea. So if our characters are in the Gobi Desert near Mongol territory, they need to travel almost straight east to get home. Many are doubtful that they can manage it and guess it'll take 20 days just to get out of the desert. The general says, then we better do it in 10. They want to avoid the fighting between the Chinese and the Mongols, and they wonder aloud if they can make it safely to Shandong. This is a modern province in eastern China, just across the sea from Korea, so my guess is instead of walking around into northern Korea, they want to get to Shandong and sail to Korea. The old man dies, and his last act is to free his loyal slave, who stays somewhat near the general's crew despite being seen as beneath them. 
He just wants to be sure his master gets a proper burial. The whole crew is in pretty bad shape when they come upon an encampment where they luck out and a Buddhist priest from Korea uh, pays for their meals. A Mongol army then arrives at the same camp. Our crew now discovers that this group of Mongols are holding a Chinese princess captive. The general says that instead of returning straight home to Korea, they will rescue this Ming princess from the Mongols. It puts them in the middle of a fight that isn't theirs, but it could help heal the rift between the Koreans and the Ming dynasty. And during a short scuffle here, the Mongols also capture the freed slave after he was trying to defend his dead master from them. Our crew ambushes the Mongols and rescues the princess and the former slave. I do need to identify the slave. His name is Yo Sol. He goes out of his way to protect the princess, and she tells the general and his men that she doesn't feel safe unless Yo Sol is her bodyguard. Again, he's not real either, but he's, he's a kind of a major character here I need to refer to by name. So now they're headed to Nanjing, which was the capital of China at the time. It is also in the east, south of Shandong. The Mongols block off their route, and the crew is joined by a group of refugees also needing protection from the Mongols. They end up at an old fortress by the sea that I would guess is near Shandong, but I'm not sure. Their, their goal is to sail around to Nanjing, which could work, but there are no boats. The Mongols arrive and say if they turn over the princess, everyone else will just be left alone. The princess even tries to turn herself over to them, but Yosol saves her. And this is the point that it became obvious to me that Yosol is the titular warrior, a freed slave protecting the princess because he chooses to, not because he has to. And he's also the best fighter, warrior, in the film. Yes, in keeping with many of our other movies from this part of the world, the warrior has plenty of cool fight scenes. The Mongol siege on the fortress takes a day or two. They even take a break to mourn when they learn their Khan back home has died. We get the line here, Genghis Khan's dream could soon be gone forever. Genghis died about 150 years before today's story. Yul Sol is captured during a skirmish and the Mongols offer him a role as a general in their army. Again, as we discussed during Mongol, a merit-based system. They don't care if he was a slave. The dude can fight. We also saw them make a similar offer to Alexander Nevsky in that film. In the final battle, Yul Sol escapes to return and help the Koreans. He and the general are killed, but their side ultimately holds off the Mongols and saves the princess. Over the next few days, the survivors are able to build a boat and the top-ranking surviving Korean sails out alone for help while everyone else just waits nervously at the fortress. An odd ending, but it's a pretty good movie. The script is kind of all over the place, but what I didn't get into here was just how fleshed out all the characters were. They take their time with everything and the acting is great. The Warrior currently has no critics reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, but has a 78% audience score and a 7.2 on IMDb. It is available to watch online, but it's kind of tricky to track down as its name is so mundane. It looks like it just went off of Netflix, but I think you can get it on Vudu or iTunes. The film is loosely based on a Korean diplomatic mission that was bringing horses as a gift to the new Ming emperor. They were reportedly exiled and never heard from again. So the movie just took that idea and built this story out of it. The emperor of China at this time was the Hongwu emperor who founded the Ming dynasty in 1368. It's been nearly 700 years since we were last in China with Detective D and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame. The Tong Dynasty we saw then, temporarily displaced by Empress Wu, ruled for another 200 years after D's time. China was splintered again for about half a century before the Song Dynasty came to power, though it didn't control as much territory as the previous dynasties had. They were in control for about 300 years before the Mongols, led by Genghis Khan's grandson Kublai Khan, seized power in China, which they held for about 100 years. So when Bill and Ted are sitting outside the Circle K and ask a lady walking by when the Mongols ruled China, the answer is 1271 to 1368 CE. 
which, if you think about it, makes it a touch misleading when they then grab Genghis Khan for their history project as he did not rule China. It was the Mongol Yuan dynasty we saw in the movie today. The Ming are in power, but the Mongols are still fighting. The Mongols were also splintered at this point, and the Yuan dynasty was just one of four kind of Mongol groups at the time. Their empire would not reunite, and each piece kind of separately fell out of power in its own region over time. The Ming period in China was extremely well-structured and stable. They had a standing army of over 1 million troops and the largest naval docks in the world in Nanjing, where our characters were hoping to take the princess. Between his empress and over a dozen consorts, the Ming emperor had no shortage of daughters, so it's hard to say who they intended this to be in the film. And they glossed over the fact that he had so many kids, he might not have even noticed she was gone. In the movie, she even confesses that she left the capital city on her own before being captured. Only three of the emperor's sons and none of his daughters were prominent enough to have their own Wikipedia pages. The young Korean king during this time had his throne usurped 13 years later. He ordered one general, Yi Songai to attack the Ming. The general instead came back to the capital and after four years of propping up puppet kings with ties to the previous dynasty, he was declared the first of the Joseon dynasty, which would last for 500 years in Korea. China's famous Forbidden City was built 20 years after the story in today's film. The Gobi Desert today is growing at an alarming rate, and yes, that's just as bad as it sounds. Some estimates say that over 1,000 square miles a year are now being lost to the desert. According to a 2017 Forbes article, over the last 40 years, China has planted more than 66 billion trees in an attempt to slow down the Gobi's growth, and unfortunately, the success of that project has been very limited. Elsewhere in the world around this time, just a couple years after the events of today's film, the Catholic Church was thrown into a turmoil called the Great Schism or the Western Schism. Long story short, they didn't like the Pope they elected, so they left Rome and named a new Pope. Having a second person claim to be the rightful Pope wasn't necessarily something new, but this time it was the same men who proclaimed them both, and the first just refused to be renounced. It took nearly 40 years to get this all sorted out and back to one recognized Pope. Obviously, the details were more politically motivated than anything else. A decade or so later, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden were united under one monarch, Queen Margaret I. They didn't exactly become one country, but she was queen of all three. This so-called Kalmar Union would last for about 130 years. And of course, all this was in the middle of the Hundred Years' War between England and France. It wasn't a constant century of fighting, but rather a conflict that kept flaring up as they could afford to keep the war effort up. And we'll get a little closer to the end of it next week, as we'll be looking at a classic from the silent film era, The Passion of Joan of Arc. <laughs>